Welcome to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with Lee Jackson. Welcome to Get Good at Presenting the podcast with myself, Lee Jackson. This week, I've got a new friend of mine, Sam Knowles. I heard Sam speak a few weeks ago, and uh, Sam did some brilliant stuff around storytelling and data. And uh, I thought, you know what, let's get him onto the podcast to share some of his knowledge and what he does. So Sam is the founder and MD of uh, a data storytelling consultancy, Insight Agents, and he helps organizations to use data smarter. He's really brilliant around story, some of the classic stuff around story, which we can look at, but also some of the new stuff, which is very much how do you use data and how do you how do you tell stories around data? This is a massive part of my work in, in, in the get good at presenting stuff that I do. I often get given the data heavy departments of an organization. I often get, you know, uh, engineers, uh, accountants, the people that are doing the figures in the background, and they always want to know how can we make this stuff more interesting? How can we not share a graph with 74 bars on it? How can we actually make it interesting? And I thought, you know what? Sam will give us some insights, literally. So, Sam, was that a good introduction or did I miss something out? No, I liked it. I liked it very much. Thank you very much. It's always interesting, isn't it, when you hear when you hear other people talking about you? No, I've, I'm I'm very happy with that. I'm definitely a data storyteller. I've got backgrounds and roots in both education and practice in both the well, starting with story and then in the analytics side. It's like that old joke, you know, the Irish American is looking for his heritage in deep, the depths of rural Ireland, and he stops a farmer and says. How do you get to Dublin? And the farmer said, well, I wouldn't start from here. And I mean, I can't recommend that people spend, you know, many, many years doing degrees in classics and psychology to get to where they are. But I I do think that bringing together data and story at a time when we are surrounded by more and more information, every single organisation, however small, public, private sector, whatever, is inundated with information and with data. And how do you make sense of that? And how do you use that to your advantage? So that's what I've spent in this small boutique uh, data storytelling consultancy that I run. So I've been doing for the last nearly eight years. And I suppose in one way or another, it's what I've been doing for 30 years. Yeah. Because your background was kind of in PR and stuff, is that right? Well, you know, I am a reformed PR man. That's right. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I worked, I worked in PR agencies. I kind of fell into PR agencies, and that's not to be rude, particularly rude about the discipline. But I, I fell into it after university. So, you know, I did. I I studied at school and at university first time round. I studied classics, Latin and Greek, and that's where I fell in love with and Sanskrit, uh, with story and storytelling and story structure. I studied those at school because I. Was was badly taught mathematics. I I could not do mathematics really at school. I was at a state grammar school in Buckinghamshire, and I was in the fourth out of fifth sets for maths, and there were more animal noises than algebra going on in those classes. And so I did what I could do. And so it wasn't a massive leap, I suppose, from the the narrative and the story and the and the myths and the legends of the ancient world right. to the myths and the legends of the modern world you know i edited my college newsletter um i'd always written <laughs> so it, it, that that was not an unnatural leap and i worked in consultancies for pr consultancies well on and off for about 25 years which is where i kind of cut my storytelling chops so reformed PR, I like that. Um, okay, so so let's do a little background. Let's 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 go a bit classical at first, Sam. Let me ask you the questions because you you studied the classics. There is lots of classical storytelling stuff, which is 
often presumed that people know about, but they often don't. It's one of these things that you you kind of know how you got there, but you're not sure of the background. So maybe just in a few minutes, can you describe some of those classic storytelling background uh, from literally the classics that I think we would sort of recognize now? Could you, because I know, I know you're a real expert in that area, so that'd be really interesting. Of course, yeah. So, I mean, I um, the starting point for me and really for the Western, certainly, and probably really the global, the human tradition, the first person to kind of look at the popular entertainment of his day, but actually the way that humans respond naturally to stories was Aristotle, um, fourth century philosopher, tutor of a pupil of Plato, tutor of Alexander the Great. He wrote lots and lots and lots of books in lots and lots of areas. And one of the thinnest, most readable, particularly in translation, um, is a book called The Poetics. And in The Poetics, he looked at the what, what are the what are the rules that underpin what were the three forms of popular entertainment of his day, which were tragedy, comedy, and epic poetry. And he mapped out what he called, well, he didn't call it the three-act story structure. More modern people have talked about it as that. And he looked at plot and character and fatal flaw and all of those things. But, but for a story to be satisfying, it needs to have three acts. And he called them the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. We might call them act one, act two, act three. But for a story, you need to have three distinct acts, kind of a beginning, a middle, and end, if you like, for any presentation. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them. You might think of it as kind of past, present, or future, or how we got here, where we're going, where we might end up. And between those acts, you need, uh, well, you need an, what, what Hollywood screenwriters would call an inciting incident, something that really gets us going. And then before, and, and then the, at the point of the point of climax, the point of, okay, this is, it's either going to end terribly or usually a bit better than we've been, usually, not always. The Empire Strikes Back, for example, classic example, that ends in absolute apparent misery, <laughs> evil su- surviving. But before the end of the story, before you get the resolution, you need to have uh, something that mirrors that, you know, the inciting incident and then the resolution. But that's often before the book, the film, the short story, the business presentation ends. You can't just have an abrupt ending. That doesn't work. Yeah. So Aristotle, he kind of set that out. And if you look at the structure of great novels, plays, films, miniseries, Netflix. I've got a friend who claims to have watched Netflix under under the three lockdowns. I can't, I can't believe that's quite true. He's, um, he feels he's completed it, does he? <laughs> he does. He does. He's got his, <laughs> got his badges, you know, like a like a fast food server. But no, so that so that that three act story structure, I mean it's the way I think that psychologists and neuroscientists would say that we make sense of the world from you know from being kids at infant school through through to consumers of, uh, of box sets through to the way that we react in a business meeting or presentation to, to what is mm. it um i mean another i mean kind of moving on from that i mean i, I still think that is an incredibly powerful incredibly simple but incredibly powerful you know if one of those acts is missing if you don't have the inciting incident and you don't have the resolution but, but if you don't have that then the story won't feel satisfying you'll feel there's something missing uh, moving on from that, uh, the American mythographer, post-Second World War, Joseph Campbell, set out what he called the hero's journey, 
which is a 12-step, it kind of handily maps onto a clock face, yeah. uh, if you like, but is a 12-step journey where a hero or heroine will set out from the ordinary world, go into a special world, usually be helped along the way, will have a quest for treasure of some sort that might be personal understanding or literally treasure in the case of, uh, you know, Bilbo Baggins and, and, and overcoming Smaug in The Hobbit and, and all of those things. But we'll go on, uh, we'll have trials, we'll be helped by somebody or some groups of people, and we'll eventually come back to the ordinary world and we'll have brought some kind of resolution and order before, of course, the whole cycle can start again. And so I think that is that, I mean, you know, I, I've used the the hero's journey quite literally each one of the 12 stations of the hero's journey as a template for writing industry award papers and the clients were very surprised at the beginning and although it took it was a, it was a hero's journey of its own actually it led to you know gold award winning papers and uh, and that because that's structure you know we we want to learn you know i mean i think my all-time favorite box set is the sopranos not because i want to be a mafia boss. Sorry, what uh, a waste management expert in the New Jersey area. I don't want to be a mafia. Boss. I don't want to live the life of Tony Soprano. I don't want to be having a having a nervous breakdown and all of those things. But I think that stories are the way that we we navigate the world. And for me, the way that the characters were brought to life and the mashup of psychiatry and and running a mafia organization. It's not really the story, it's the characters. It's what you know, I don't want to be Jon Snow in Game of Thrones. Um, it wouldn't be a good idea. wouldn't be here. But we, we learn so much from the way that people's lives play out dramatically. And, you know, being, being humans with, in the course of our evolution, I was talking about this to, to somebody yesterday, in the course of our evolution, we got bigger whites of the eyes. We got more facial muscles to express emotion. We got bigger whites of the eyes so that we can track where people's gaze is going. We're really brilliant, empathic creatures, we're able to, you know, we, we and only a few other species have what are known as mirror neurons in our brain so that we can experience what's going on in somebody else's life, whether it's a friend or family or enemy or opposing football fan or patient if we're a doctor. We, we're able to empathise. And I think that the, the, the way that story structure and stories well told resonate maps onto the fact that we are these brilliant empathic creatures. Okay, so let's just bring it down to earth a little bit then. So you, you mentioned The Sopranos. I know of it. It's not one that I've personally watched myself. As you were saying that, what I was quite interested was there's been in re in the last sort of three or four years a massive increase in true crime. So Netflix is now full of, in the top 10, I think there's two at the moment, of true crime documentaries. And I was thinking that that three-act thing even fits into that, doesn't it? something happens, there's a search, there's a thing, and then there's some kind of conclusion, or you hope. There's nothing worse than these these documentaries where at the end they go, I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> In a way, maybe there's a th little three-act thing, even within a true crime podcast, a true crime Netflix drama. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? It seems to be everywhere, right? Without doubt. I mean, two things to pick up on there. I mean, one uh, one of the, I think it was fair to call it pioneering. I don't know if you ever came across Serial, the eight-part podcast about a, about a, a, somebody who inadvertently got mixed up in a murder. But I mean, I think, I think it's very, very interesting. You can absolutely apply this three-act structure. I have a, a sister who is probably 
the well let's be no she's definitely the best forensic scientist we've had in in the last 40 years um she's called angela gallup and she uh, her very first case up in west yorkshire was a was was one of the one of the Sutcliffe ripper case cases but she's got, got a rep i mean she's in her well it's in her early 70s now but she's been responsible and and the companies that she's she's run been responsible for sorting out cold cases in particular so damalo taylor rachel lakell stephen lawrence roberta calvi vatican banker under blackfriars bridge all cases that forces just didn't have apparently the data and she wrote a book two or three years ago called when the dogs don't bark and i love that metaphor she said it's important to listen when the dogs do bark because they may be pointing you towards something that's going on. Yeah. But it's when the dogs don't bark that you really need to start paying attention to footprints or blood splashes or fabrics that have been examined again and again, but not using quite quite the, the right way. And I was talking to her over the weekend about, not about the satisfaction of, I mean, you know, a lot of the the, the violent crimes that she's been involved in helping to solve yeah. are terribly sad, but if you're able, you know, in, in her specific case, and it, I, I'm being a little bit technical, if you're able to map out that narrative, then there's an ability for there to be some closure for the victim's families, or, or indeed for the victims if they're, if they're still alive. So I think it's powerful stuff, Story. I think it's really powerful stuff. It makes the world go around. Yeah, I mean, when, when I do a day, uh, so tomorrow I'm delivering a, a Get Good at Presenting, which is my full day thing. I do it quite often with leaders and executives and stuff like that. And I always encourage them to find what's the one thing that you want someone to walk away with in a presentation. You know, let's not beat around the bush here. People will not take 127 things away from a presentation. (laughs) They will probably take away one thing. Three, if you're really good, one in reality. It might even be a feeling, how they felt while they were there, how they connected with you. It might be a fact, whatever. So I, so, so even, even when I do them a whole day of training and exercise, I'll say to them, listen, the one thing I want you to take away from today, if you forget everything else, just tell more stories. Now, that needs qualifying a lot because it's, you know, just tell random stories. That's not what I mean. Tell long, laborious do the Ronnie Corbett type stories, which are quite often, you will remember Ronnie Corbett, I'm sure. I certainly do sitting in a large chair talking about his golf club for 23 minutes. That's not what I'm talking about. But people often don't. They just ditch story. And I've talked about this probably a fair bit on the podcast. They just ditch it. They just think it's not relevant or they're just not used to it. It's almost like they go into a business or an organization. And as they walk through the door, there's a filter on the door which removes all stories and personality. And as they walk in, they think they have to become a kind of a certain person that speaks in a certain way. And there's always a little bit of that, but actually your own personal experience, your own stories, your corporate stories, as well as your personal stories can make your presentations absolutely stand out from the crowd. Particularly as you, I'm sure have been to many of these things, some like I have, when you're on a day of presentations, mm-hmm. so you, maybe you're at an expo, maybe you're at a staff conference where sometimes I've sat and there's been 12 presentations in the day. And how do you stand out for the 12 when 11 of the 12 are using the same PowerPoint template, the same font? How do you do that? And of course, one of the ways of doing that is literally to tell story. So let's let's go a little bit deeper, Sam, if it's okay, to pick your brains while you're here on data and storytelling. You know, say I've got a client who comes to me, they love facts and figures. I don't know, they're an auditor, they're an accountant, they're an actuary, they're an engineer. They're a scientist. They love the spreadsheets. They love the figures, but yet their presentations are 
for want of a better word, they're lacking a bit of interest, should we say, right? So how do you deal with that? And how do you persuade them to use story? And how do you actually do that? Because I think our listeners would love to know a bit more about that, Sam. You're a very kind man to say that they maybe lack a bit of interest. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also interesting, you know, that you talk about when they walk in the room, suddenly they, I mean, what they stop being, I think, is human. They stop talking human and they they lose humanity and empathy because they believe, they've been trained or brought up to believe that actually this is the way to do it. There's corporate speak and, that, you know, there's the way that I speak to my kids and my wife and my friends and my family or my husband or whoever it may be. And then there's sort of... I don't know, homo corporatensis or whatever the word might be. There's homo sapiens and, there's, and then there's corporate man and woman. I mean, it is often men who are guilty of this. I think it's a slight, it, but it's not, not, not exclusively a gendered thing. So I think that one of the things that we forget and we forget at our peril, and we may not, many of us may not know this, but the way that humans make decisions is based on emotion. And the way that they justify those decisions is based on rationality. So we we choose to do something, to buy something, to trust somebody, to go with this company rather than that supplier, based on a quick and dirty, evolutionarily ancient bits of the brain that have no access to language, have no access to data, have no access to facts and figures. And we justify them rationally. Now, the work of the Princeton psychologist Daniel Kahneman wrote a a book about 10 years ago called Thinking Fast and Slow. Very difficult book to read, but important book. And his life's work, he's in his early 90s now, his life's work has shown that that's how we make decisions. We make them emotionally and we justify them rationally. So my starting point when and, you know, you t- you're talking working with with accountants and actuaries on Thursday. I've got a I've got a half day in person, Lee, in person. Wow. With seventeen actuaries. Actually, no, I think one of them's been pinged. We may be down to sixteen now, but in person, and they are financial contract compliance auditors who are very much as you describe, and they write you know good important reports that that show their clients how they can save money and improve things and the rest of it. And like uh, many in that field, in the analytics field, in the market research field, in the data field, they want to show their workings out. They want to show what yeah. they've done. They. Feel Feel, you know, they are validated by the technical aspects of their craft. And yet, many times, the audiences that they're looking to influence, to persuade, are many leagues below them in terms of Excel ability or, 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 you know, they wouldn't know, you know, their audience wouldn't know their a pivot table from their elbow. They don't really speak the same language. You know, there's a long, long time, I suppose, that communications and marketing people in many organisations have been sort of slightly dismissed by the chief financial officers and the CEOs as the colouring in department because they you know they have no accountability for their for, for their decisions. Well, I think those things that those things are change are changing. But very often those that deal with data, I don't think they're not human, I don't think they're not empathetic, I don't think that they lack the ability. But what I think they fail to do is to think about who their audience might be, who they are looking to persuade, and also how much information, even with slides and a talk track, how much information people can take in. And so my encouragement and the kind of the, the, the golden rules that I try and teach people around data storytelling are very much less about analytics and statistical tests and proof and the rest of it. I could do that. I have done that. When I went back to university and became a psychologist, much to my surprise to find that an awful lot of it was statistics, I overcompensated and learnt not only how to 
do that analysis, but also how to how to use it convincingly to a, an intelligent but a lay audience, because it's really, really hard. There is this thing, I'm sure you've come across this thing, the curse of knowledge, the curse of knowledge. When you know a lot about a topic, it's really difficult to imagine what it's like not to know a lot about that topic. I mean, I think university lecturers, academics, scientists, government officials, lawyers, accountants are probably the most, in fact, I know they're the most guilty because they come out the most guilty time and time again of the curse of knowledge. It's not about dumbing down or getting down to the level of, of the average person, but it's about sort of almost being mind blind to the fact that people don't know as much. If you know something, there are all these, all these sort of shortcuts we have in our minds to, to make it easier to live with all of the data that surrounds us. There's this thing, hindsight bias. If you have been exposed to something, well, it's obvious. Of course, everyone knows that, don't they? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's why I find it so difficult to watch match of the day when I know the results. I can see that Fulham are going to lose again, even if I might feel optimistic that they might beat Liverpool. Of course, it'll never happen. But hindsight bias, when you know something, imagining what it's like not to know that. You know, it's like going back to story. Say you're watching a true crime, either a dramatisation or a documentary, and the, the final, the piece of evidence drops into place, or Sherlock Holmes, you know, particularly maybe the, for the, the, the recent Cumberbatch and uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, when that piece of evidence finally slots into place, you know, that feeling of kind of euphoria and, and sort of kind of insight, but, but you can't unknow that. And that can make it very difficult to rewatch or reread or go back to something because you know it already. But it's the same, I think, when you're building a presentation using data, that you know all of this, you've done all of the work, you understand what it all means, and your audience doesn't. And if you use a lot of data, I mean, I'm always talking about finding and using only truly relevant data, be sparing with the data that you use. Okay. To give you an example, market researchers, I love the market research industry, partly because I work with a lot of companies in that area, and partly because some of the when they show me this is a presentation I'm making to my client tomorrow, I think 162 slides <laughs> and 161 of them have got charts on. Um, yeah. uh, so, have you heard of the appendix? I might start with, or out of these 162, how many of them show us anything has actually changed? Three. Brilliant. Let's have those three and work on those and put the rest in an appendix. Because think what it's going to feel like. You know, people talk about death by PowerPoint. 162 slides, which is a real number of slides I've seen. That's more like genocide by PowerPoint. I mean, it's totally unfair. 167 is the record I've seen so far. Oh, you've, you've trumped me. Just a slight bit, yeah. So they come with 162 slides. They're data heavy. They love all that stuff. They live and breathe in that world. And what you are saying to them is, what's the key three slides out of that? What's the key three bits of data, for example? And how do they respond when you say that to them? Because they, I guess they won't like that, Sam, right? With extreme panic to begin with, <laughs> and this is a palace revolution, and we can't do that, and all of this matters. And, I, and, and my advice to them is to breathe and just to reflect on, imagine what it's like to be in the audience. So, you know, one of the, one of the exercises that I'll do, uh, if I'm, and particularly if I'm running a, a full day with people, is to get them to, well, one, to... First of all, to write a story using data about a client or a project or a favorite sports star, it doesn't matter what it's about, but to research some data and to write something. And they'll stuff the first story with data because, because they're on a data storytelling course, right? They want to they get good marks for using a lot of data. That's what will happen most often. And then we'll sort of say, well, 
you've used four percentages in the first sentence. And, you know, you say 40% of people like this, but 30% and 27, but 16. And you think, well, what attaches to what? So first of all, let's use fewer numbers. Second of all, let's think about using different types of numbers. So you might say 20%, and then there may be another 20%, which could get, so you could say one in five. So you could vary the type of numbers. But when they come with all of their numbers, and, and, and I say, we need to make a judicious case. What I'll get them to do is to write a pen portrait of their audience. So I'm speaking to, they are chief financial officers who love numbers and they dream in spreadsheets. Okay, if that's your audience, we can probably get away with using it. Or I've been invited by my son's secondary school to come and talk about what it's like to work at my... Okay, they're bright and smart and data savvy, but they don't want to hear as much maybe, or I'm talking at the professional speaking associations annual conference, okay? They're going to be bright and savvy, but they, you know, tone down, the. think about what it's going to be like to be in that audience. And the simple act of writing an audience profile, and, you know, it doesn't need to be brilliant prose, it could be bullet points, but just to really to know and understand the audience that you're looking to influence, that pen portrait exercise can have a, a really galvanic effect on them stripping out the data and looking for, I don't know, statisticians call them the killer statistics. You know, what 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 really matters? You know, what really matters about about corporate performance in the last quarter? Is the fact that you've done this or or you know what really matters? Yeah. So those those things have changed. That's what I tend to do. So I show them and I've talked about this before a little bit, where you show them the big graph, give them the big picture, but then immediately zoom in and show them the bit that, that that matters in effect. So it's that zooming in that often we don't do. And death by PowerPoint, of course, is that is when you don't zoom in and when you don't know the purpose of your talk. So you just talk about everything. And that's what academics suffer from that a lot. Lots of other people suffer from that. They just talk about the whole thing and that's why it meanders, that's why it goes nowhere. And sometimes, you know, like must me and you, we might have been there might be eight of those presentations in a row and that just becomes like a bath of data and a bath of just at that point people are not only checking their phones they're seriously going through their inbox and just doing their inbox aren't they i've been speaking to executives and leaders and managers over the last few weeks and there is definitely a thing that is developing here and they and many of them admitted to me some that they're on they're on 3 hour work meetings listening to presentations and they're all, mainly all with cameras off and doing their emails at the same time. So the presentations are so bad and so data heavy and so dull that they now got used to, I'll log on, but I'm not actually in the meeting. And so you've got this whole massive waste of hours and hours of productivity of people in meetings, but not actually in meetings. It's just a bizarre and that's and actually all of that can be stopped if we shorten the meetings, make the presentations punchier and better, and then send the appendix or the email or the PDF afterwards. That immediately just makes the whole thing more effective. But large organizations and, and companies would rather have a three-hour meeting where no had nobody's there after 20 minutes. They're all doing their inbox. <laughs> it's just it's just, I mean, they must know because they're probably emailing each other. That's the weirdest. So yeah, so I I get that Sam. It's um, it's it's important for them to focus and to zoom in for sure. When you get a really tough group, who might come back at you quite a lot, 
and say, no, I need this data. I need the comfort blanket of these graphs and stuff. What do you say to them then, Sam? I love a tough group. When I was about 20 years ago, I was back. Uh, I went back to school and did this master's and then a doctorate in psychology. And I was teaching quite a lot. And I really like tough crowds. Actually, I, the thing I liked teaching most of all was statistical analysis on computers, both lecturing, but also the workshops, because many psychologists like me didn't realise they were going to have to do quite so much data analysis. They thought it was going to be about the mind or about, or about you know, so they didn't realise they were going to actually have to do some experiments. That, that was my naive yeah. experience. And often they come into workshops nearly crying. And you say, okay, so let's just, let's just, I mean, I mean, I actually have seen both tears, but also elation when you say, okay, so let's just look at your, the data that you've got and let's just go back a step. Just tell me, without being technical about it, tell me what it was you were looking to find out. And you can do this with market researchers, with auditors. What, you know, what, well, we wanted to find out if we gave someone a cup of coffee, could they run faster? Okay. <laughs> Okay, right. And so I might say, well, can they? Or, you know, if we if we drop the price and double the advertising spend on on Facebook and, and Twitter, does that have an impact? Well, we can see that, you know, maybe it does. And if there's a wind blowing on a Thursday and 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 there isn't a lockdown, then yes, it really works. Or okay, so it's it's complicated, but we can break it down into into elements of story that any business presentation, as I say, ought to be ought to be as well structured as possible to satisfy that unique but powerful human craving for for the, the for the three acts. So that that's one thing. Where are you starting from? What has happened with whatever interve- intervention that you or others could be others? The competitors launched a car that was half the price and twice as fast. Okay, well we weren't expecting that, and this is so so you know there's there's your inciting incident. There's but a hard crowd, yeah, a hard crowd. We've got to have this. We can't not have this. Okay, but some things are more important than others. Yeah. And so corporate reputation, corporate reputation, I've worked with the corporate reputation teams in several research, in several research companies and client, and client companies too. Uh, you know, they'll do brand health trackers. They'll look at 20 variables about trust and consideration and awareness and affinity and lots and lots of different, you know, abstract concepts. And they'll measure them and slightly different under the pandemic but but generally these things don't move very fast they don't really move very fast so let's look at the ones so they all matter i'm not saying that not they all matter we will accept that they all matter but which are the ones that have experienced the biggest increase or decrease or if they're all chaotic which are the ones that have stayed the same which are the which are the ones that you're based so let's look for not necessarily the outliers but let's look for changes in the, and this is just one example. Let's look for changes that are the most meaningful in the period that we're that we're looking at, and let's see if we can explain that. And we may not be able to explain it. It may be because you might have sold more ice cream sandwiches because it was hot. It may have had nothing to do with your distribution deal with Tesco or or, or, or whatever. It, you know, it, there may be some kind of hidden third cause you haven't you haven't thought about. But let's let's look at what's changed. And let's let's throw nothing away. So I, I think I think people feel I've done all this work, I've done all this analysis, and not I'm going to f- inflict it on my audience, but I'm going to show them how hard I've been working. Let me give you a, 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 um, a, an example, and it comes kind of from client side. Google say to their research partners, when you come back to us with however big your piece of work was, we want three slides. And on those three slides, there are allowed to be no more than three bullet points. 
And in those three bullet points, you're allowed to have no more than one piece of data. So that's three slides, three bullet points, three bits of data. You can create the biggest, fattest, appendix-rich set of slides or report or tables for us that you want. And I think that's genius on their part. And it's not to dumb it down. It's to say what really, really matters. Because the response that you want, I think, as a, as a data storyteller, and to some extent, we are all data storytellers because we're wading through. It might be pictorial data or verbal data. or new, We're all, to some extent, data storytellers because our stories are underpinned with facts about what's happened, about the market, about, about yeah. trading. So we all are. What you want, you don't want people to glaze over. There's either the turn the camera off because there may be a delivery or because I'm going to go and do something else, or there's the really intense staring. And you can tell they're not staring at you. They're staring at their screen because they're doing their email. Right? You don't want that. Or, you don't, or even worse, even worse. I wasn't presenting, I hasten to add, but I was on a, a meeting where I could see, reflected in the specs, the Yahtzee game that this senior executive was playing. Oh, no. <laughs> Get non-reflective glasses. Yeah, yeah you, don't, you, you, don't, you, you, you know, you, re- you really, really, really don't want that. But so, no, the effect that you want is people to go, what? Hang on. Lee's just said that our market share has doubled and we've halved our advertising spend. That can't be right. So, you know, I'm, I've never been... And I have been fishing once or twice, but I've never been fly fishing. But I'm told, you know, what you want is to, is, is the the same effect as a fly, uh, someone who's fly fishing. You cast the the fly onto the water, and the fish looks up, and it's really interested. You cast the data that says we've doubled turnover and, and halved spend. That can't be right. Tell me more. And when they, as soon as someone says tell me more, you know, you you've intrigued the audience. You've used data to get them on the line. And now you can say, okay, now we need to look at the four markets that we're working in and the three retailers. And then people, yeah, that's interesting. So as this doing better than test, that's interesting. Oh, God, I didn't think we could have done that. Um, that's when you get engagement. Because what you want to do is you want to start a conversation and start a, a sustainable conversation. You don't want to bore people. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that, Sam. That's great. I think we can sort of wrap it up there, really, because that is a beautiful kind of conclusion to what you were saying and what today is really has been quite a deep dive into story and data and stuff. So I've loved learning from you, Sam. I've loved that stuff. Tell me how people can get hold of you, Sam. Uh, what's the best way to get in contact with with you? I'm very discoverable. Probably LinkedIn is possibly the best way. And the profile is Sam Knowles, like Beyonce, although in no sense apart from our surname. Sam Knowles, Data Story is me on LinkedIn, or they can find me at insightagents.co.uk. There are way there are there's contact forms there. Well, Sam, you've been very generous. Thank you so much for your interest. I could speak all day, but I guess we should probably wrap it up there. But I look forward to chatting to you again soon. So uh, thank you so much, Sam. Been brilliant. Been my great pleasure. Thank you, Lee. So I hope you've enjoyed that podcast. Great time with Sam Knowles. Lots of deep information there where we can dig a little bit deeper. I'll put some links in the notes. But also, I just wanted to tell you that I've been doing some YouTube shorts. Get me with the modern things, eh? YouTube shorts, upright videos designed to be watched on your phone, and they are all less than one minute. So I've done, I think I've done about 60 or 80 of them, and there's loads of them at the moment, and they're currently going through the Get Good at Presenting ones. So just subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, which is Lee Jackson Speaker, and I'll put the link below in the notes, and you'll get all of my YouTube shorts. You get two a week. And then in August and September, they'll move over to get good at work. So I've got loads of top tips. I'm just giving away loads of stuff. 
in very short, digestible, easy to watch videos. Share them, enjoy them. And uh, thank you for listening. So see you again soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with your host, Lee Jackson. If you'd like to know more about Lee's work as a motivational keynote speaker and presentation coach, visit his website at leejackson.biz. That's leejackson.biz. That's leejackson.biz.